family. And so I'm so excited to be back with you guys. Uh, quick update, I am now the junior high pastor at a church called Faith Bridge in Spring, Texas. And so um, if this was a normal Sunday, I'd be talking to about 200 junior high students right now. So I say that to warn you that if I start dancing around up here or like telling goofy jokes or doing cartwheels or whatever, that's what I typically have to do to keep my audience's attention because it lasts for about five minutes. And uh, so I have to get all crazy. So if I do, it's like, Adam, calm down. We're adults. We're paying attention to what you're saying. Uh, but um, also, if the mustache is throwing you off, um, I apologize. I, uh, I don't normally have this guy, and I have always admired mustaches for a long time. And it was March, and that's Mustache March, for those of you who don't know. And so I decided to finally uh, have my own. And now that I have it, I realize that I can admire it from a distance, but not so much on my face. And so, uh, but uh, I've missed you guys so much, and, and so thank you for having me. And thank you for letting me uh, talk to you guys this morning. I wrestled for quite a long time, for, for weeks, once I found out that I was going to be talking here. With what I was going to be talking about, I would sit down, and I would try to think up what kind of mind-blowing story or information could I give you guys that would just rock your world, right? And then after wrestling with it and praying over it and becoming very frustrated, I realized, I'll leave that to Mike. I'll let him blow you guys' mind. And, uh, and so I'll just keep my message very simple, uh, but it's also very honest. And so this morning, uh, the, the message that I want to tell you guys is that it's something that I've realized over and over and over again. It's that following Jesus and his example on the cross will mess up your world. It will completely wreck your world. And I mean that in the best way possible. Um, but it will completely wreck your world. Um, I want to I want to give you guys uh, some quick backstory. It, it took me about 19 years for Jesus to actually completely destroy my world. Uh, it took a long time. And uh, I want to give you a quick backstory leading up to that. I... Uh, my parents divorced when I was about five, and so I had this weird upbringing of being Baptist and Catholic. My dad's side of the family is Catholic. My mom's side of the family is Baptist. So it was really strange. Uh, I was messed up because of that. It was kind of weird. Um, and then my parents helped start River Point Church, actually, right down there. Uh, they were one of the original families. And so I grew up in that church um, once we moved here and went to church every single Sunday. In fact, I was one of the people that was helping build up the church and tear it down whenever it was over in the clubhouses and the schools and whatever else. Uh, I went to a Baptist high school. Chris Henderson was my senior Bible teacher. Uh, it's now Fort Bend Christian Academy, right? That's what it's called. Um, I went there, and uh, then I ended up going to U of H to become a theater major. Throughout all of this time, uh, I thought I knew Jesus. I thought I knew who he was. I, if somebody were to ask me, I would say, yes, I am a Christian. I do consider myself to be a Christian. Um, however... Uh, I'm looking back, I'm not entirely convinced that was true. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if I, if I actually was. Um, because for me, I was really happy with the idea that Jesus had saved me and that I'd be going to heaven when I die, which was how I thought this whole thing worked. I thought that was what it was all about. Uh, you just believe in him, he'll save you, and you're good to go. And you just live the rest of your life and you try to be a good guy or whatever else. And I was really good at that. I never really got into trouble. Um, and uh, when I was at U of H, I was a theater major, and uh, I was awful at it. And uh, it took me a while to realize it, but I was. But my sophomore year, 
uh, two guys came into my world and completely flipped me upside down. Um, and I'm convinced now that uh, it's through people that Jesus messes up our world, that, that Jesus like completely wrecks us and, and, and rocks us. And so the two guys were Mike Skinner and Chris Henderson. Um, and so it, it began with um, some people trying to convince me to go to this Bible study that was at Chris Henderson's house. Some of you know the story. If you do, uh, hopefully I can give you a different perspective on it. Uh, some people literally dragged me to this Bible study. I wanted to have nothing to do with it. I thought I was going to be bored to tears, honestly, uh, when I went. And uh, to be honest, I was right. When I got there, I was bored to tears, yeah? And uh, no offense, Chris. I just didn't know what they were talking about. And uh, so, But what caught me was afterwards, Chris and I started talking about music. And just all the different bands that we liked. And he convinced me, hey, uh, or he asked me, do you play the guitar? I said, like, I know, like, three strings, or three chords. He's like, perfect, you're coming to play for us, right? And I was, okay. And uh, so I came, and and I set up shop, and and I played. uh, And I didn't notice at the time, but Chris, didn't you have me completely turned down in the mix, like, the first few times I played? (laughs) Do I? I wasn't even plugged in, yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. I was so nervous. I was just trying to concentrate on the chords I was playing, right? I had no idea. Uh, it was awful. Uh, but you guys were all so gracious, and you smiled at me, and you were like, good job, and even though it wasn't. Uh, and, and it was great. And at the same time, uh, Mike and I started becoming friends. And he would start every single Wednesday uh, after band practice a lot of times, he and I would walk around Sweetwater, walk around here for hours, sometimes until 2 or 3 in the morning. And we called them theology walks. And we would just, uh, I was allowed to, at that point, ask him all of these questions that I had about Christianity, about Jesus, that never made any sense to me, that never really clicked with me. And we did that for months, months and months. And what was happening that I didn't realize at the time was that I was being discipled. Um, it's the first time that ever happened to me. My whole life up until that point, Christianity was you show up with a big group of people, someone talks at you and, and tries to indoctrinate you with whatever it is that they're teaching, and then you go about your normal life, and that's what it was. But for the first time in my life, people were investing in me, they were pursuing me, they were loving me, and they were teaching me. And as a result, after not too many months of this happening, of Chris investing in me and and, and kind of sucking me into the church through an avenue that he knew I enjoyed, and then through Mike befriending me, and then teaching me all this stuff, and then kind of training me on uh, different elements of Christianity, before I knew it, my world was flipped upside down. Before I knew it, I was decided, U of H isn't for me, I'm going to go to HBU. I'm going to study biblical languages for some odd reason that I still can't uh, piece together because I'm awful at languages. Uh, and I think I'm going to try ministry out. My world was completely flipped upside down. And for the first time in my life, I wanted Jesus not to just be the Savior of my life, but Lord of my life. I wanted to actually follow him. Wrecked my world. Completely flipped me upside down. My life was heading in one direction. All of a sudden, it was heading in the opposite. Right? The second time my world was wrecked was when you guys became my church family. Once again, I mean that the best possible way, right? Uh... Up until that point, I had never really understood the term church family. That never made sense to me. Because um, uh, like I said before, church was a place that you go and you attend with a bunch of other people and some religious leader uh, indoctrinates you with whatever it is that they think that you need to know. But you guys, it was different. 
you brought me in, and for the first time, it wasn't about being in a building uh, with a bunch of other people, but it was about being part of a living, breathing, active, humble community that was earnestly and faithfully trying to seek after God. And I have so many stories of how gracious and loving you guys were from the time that I played there to the first time I ever preached in front of you guys. Uh, for those of you who haven't been here um, that long, we used to have a, a, another guy named uh, Matt Rosie, who was, our, who was a pastor here. And I loved Matt. He was great. Uh, and I think people who knew Matt loved him as well. But he ended up having to take another job somewhere else. And so Mike and I began filling the pulpit at 19 and 20 years old. We began speaking to a congregation without really knowing what in the world we were doing, right? And I remember the first time I ever uh, was going to speak, I was, I was, uh, we were actually, the church was arranged differently back then. We were kind of aiming, aiming at that corner back there. Uh, and it's uh, so much better this way. But I remember sitting there, getting ready to go up, and it was the last worship song. I felt like I was about to puke all, all over the place. And I was thinking to myself, I could get up and leave right now. And I wouldn't have to talk, and they would forgive me, and they would put on a smile and say, it's okay, you're loved, they have grace on you. Uh, but I ended up getting up there and speaking, and it may have been better if I would have left, right? But, uh, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Uh, but, um, you guys afterwards came up and you kept telling me how good it was and how thankful you were that I got there and talked and how, and you're so gracious and you're so loving to this punk kid who was trying to teach you guys something when you guys knew way more than I did. And so for the first time, church was a family. It wasn't a building. It was a community of people earnestly seeking after God. Flipped my world upside down. I had never thought of church that way before. Completely flipped my world upside down. And there's dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of stories similar to that in which Jesus just continuously through people, wrecks my life, wrecks it, and takes it in a completely different direction than I thought I was going to be going. Just ruins it over and over again, and once again, in the best possible way. And so what I want to do, I want to read, some, I want to read a, a couple verses real quick. That these verses, um, more than any other verses that i found in Scripture, have completely wrecked me. They've completely flipped my world upside down. It completely altered the way I see everything around me, the way I view the world around me. And so what I want to do is I want to flip to John 13. We're going to go 34 through 35 first. Here we go. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciple, if you have love for one another. Now, this might seem like a weird set of verses to completely wreck my world and, and flip me upside down, right? Like, these seem pretty basic, and to be honest, they're verses that I've heard over and over and over again. I've heard them probably a hundred times. Um, until one day, one day, something clicked in my brain that completely destroyed the rest of my brain, Right? And I started thinking about what are the implications of this love that he's talking about here. How, what is he, how do we practically apply this love that he's talking about here? Right? Because love is such a broad term. It can mean anything. Like, I love my mom, and I love pepperoni pizza. Right? I love my wife, Kathleen, and I love roller coasters. Right? They're all different types of love. 
Um, so, so what is it that he's talking about here? Right? So I want to flip back to Matthew. Jesus answers that question for us uh, pretty clearly. Uh, Matthew 25. Let's go 31 through 46. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, so he's talking about the disciples. Remember he said, this is how, you, this is how the world will know that you are my disciple by the way you love one another. He's about to describe to us here what makes us this disciple, what makes us the sheep here in this situation. All right? Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Here we go. It's about to wreck your world. I'm warning you. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal fire. Can we all just take a second and be real honest and admit that these verses are terrifying? It's okay. They, they terrify me too. Uh, because, man, that's not me sometimes. Most of the time. That's terrifying to me. And it's especially difficult because we live in a society that conditions us to look down upon the least of these. We live in a society that conditions us to think and say out loud, man, all those moochers on welfare, they need to get a job. Get a job, you bum. Or I'm not going to give that homeless guy money because you know he's probably just going to use it to buy drugs. That's what I think. He'll probably just use it to buy drugs. Right? And these are thoughts that I have thought. These are thoughts that have gone through my mind. But I don't see Jesus here putting any qualifiers on any of these terms. I don't see Jesus here saying, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those in prison, unless they're drug addicts, then obviously you leave them alone. Don't, don't, don't go visit them in prison if they're murderers, because you know what? Uh, they, they don't deserve any kind of grace. Right? I don't see those kind of qualifiers here. And it, and it makes me terrified. But you know why these verses really mess me up? It's because 
For 24 years, I've had these checks and balances ingrained in my brain that I view the entire world with. Everything I see in the world, I, I, I process it in my head and I judge it according to these checks and balances that I've been put there uh, during 24 years of living, right? And what this does, what these verses does for my head, my thinking, is it takes those checks and balances and it completely wipes them from my brain and says, you can't look at the world that way anymore. You have to look at it differently now. So here's what I mean. Here's an example. And you may have heard this before because uh, this, Luther calls this the theology of the cross. And so you may have heard something similar to this before. The idea that the cross causes you to kind of look at everything flipped upside down, right? Uh, so here's just a hypothetical example. And by hypothetical, I mean it's actually happened to me. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll be driving down the street, and I will come to a, uh, to a stoplight, and I'll see a homeless guy right there. And he obviously looks like he's pretty messed up. And he looks grungy and dirty. Teeth are falling out. He hasn't shaved in weeks. Probably smells bad, right? And so I pull up, and I, uh, I roll up my windows, and I lock my door, and I try not to make eye contact with him, right? Just look at the, like, you know, just say, he'd be like, no, I'm good, right? Like, that kind of thing. And I take him in, and I put him through all the checks and balances in my brain, and I process him. And in my thinking, I come to the conclusion that that man is far from the kingdom. That man is far from the kingdom of God. And then I get home, and I see my neighbor across the street from me with his beautiful wife and his two perfect smiling kids and his incredibly neat garage where nothing's out of line and his really, really nice car. And that man is a decent man. Like, he's a nice man. Like, my car broke down. He probably let me borrow his awesome car. Right? He would invite me over for dinner. Like, he's a decent man. All I really need to do is just maybe, like, get him in a suit and bring him to church. If I could just get some Jesus in a man, he'd be good to go. That man, according to my checks and balances in my brain, that man is close to the kingdom. That man is close to the kingdom. But what this does, what these verses do for me, is it flips everything upside down and it ruins all of those checks and balances in my brain. So where I look at that situation again, but I look at it through the lens of the cross, I look at it through the lens of Jesus, and I see the homeless man and all of his brokenness, and I think, no, that man is who is close to the kingdom. That man is close to the point of saying, Jesus, I have nothing. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I'm messed up. I need help. I need something. I have nothing left. All I have left is you. That man is close to the kingdom. Versus the man who has it all together, who maybe in his own thing, he doesn't really need Jesus. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll accept him so I can go to heaven. But then beyond that, his life is good. He doesn't really need to rely on Jesus. He's, he's, he's good to go. He's got the perfect wife, the perfect kids, the nice house, nice car. It completely, completely destroys everything that I used to think. All of my checks and balances in my brains. And so I'm no longer, because of this, because of these verses, because of what Jesus has done to me, I'm no longer allowed to look at people anymore and say, you bum, get a job. Or I can't give that guy money, he'll use it on crack cocaine. 
or whatever it is, I'm no longer allowed to look at that anymore. Instead, the least of these becomes our mission. The least of these become the people that we are to seek out. That we are to seek out and love and show them the kingdom. My checks and balances have been flipped upside down. And it gets even crazier than that. Um, Recently, uh, all of our junior high students and our senior high students at the church I'm working at, we are in the midst of what's called a mission season right now. And uh, we're preparing all of our students for the upcoming uh, mission season in the summer. Uh, We run uh, 15 mission trips this summer, 11 of which my junior high students are going on, all into the third ward of Houston, um, where they will be uh, ministering to inner city kids and inner city adults and uh, just uh, doing a lot of work projects around there. And so um, in order to kind of prepare them uh, spiritually um, for what they're about to encounter, I decided let's go through the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever told, ever, right, by the greatest preacher of all time. Um, and so I decided that I think that would be helpful. That would get them in this kingdom mindset because they're about to go and expand the kingdom. They're about to go into the inner city, into third ward, dangerous territory, in order to try to build the kingdom. So let me get that mindset instilled in them. And secretly I was thinking, I need that mindset instilled in me too. Right. Like, I need this probably just as much as I do. If not, if maybe more, right? Um, and so I, I, I've been, for the past few months, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And I've been, I've been teaching them that Jesus starts off this sermon by announcing this wonderful news. But he's announcing this wonderful news to people that normally don't ever get good news. Right? He's announcing it to the meek. To those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. To the poor, to those who are mourning, to the peacemakers, to those who are persecuted. All these, all these different people that normally never get good news. He's coming at the beginning of the sermon. He's saying, hey, I have wonderful news for you. My kingdom is here. I'm bringing it. And then he tells us, you are to be heralds of this good news. And he explains it to, in terms of, of salt and light, right? You are to be light in a world that is covered in darkness. You are to be salt in a world that has completely lost its flavor. You are to be heralds of this good news. You are to bring this kingdom to earth. Right? And then he goes on to describe what that means. It means that you better get your anger in check. It means that retaliation is off the table always. It means that you're thinking you need to clean it up a bit. It means that you better make your yeses be yes and your noes be no. No more deceitful talk. And it means that you have to love your enemies. And you know what? If your enemies are hurting you, if they're persecuting you, if they're threatening you, then how about you pray for them? How about you pray for them? You are to love them. It was at this point that my junior high students and myself, if I'm completely honest, had a hard time wrapping that concept around in their mind. This idea of loving your enemies and praying for them if they're hurting you. It didn't make sense. Especially in the world we live in. You don't do that. It's completely, it's bonkers, it's insane. And so there's two students that uh, every single week before our, uh, on Wednesday, before the big Bible study that like 200 kids show up to, um, Anabaptist uh, came along um, in about the in medieval times, uh, in the middle of the 15th or 16th century. And so, uh, and they came along at a time where uh, both Catholics and Protestants had these really strong, uh, really vicious armies always fighting people. But the Anabaptists were so different because they were complete. Um, they had a, a bunch of different types of theology that didn't really coincide with Protestants or Catholics. And one of the ones that really made 
the Catholics and the Protestants angry was their pacifism. They refused to fight ever. So they wouldn't join the Catholic ranks or the Protestant ranks. And so as a result, Anabaptists were heavily persecuted. Heavily. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Anabaptists were, mur- were killed, were, were murdered in a bunch of different ways. And so during this time, this guy named, um, this, uh, guy named Dirk Willems, and in 1569, he was arrested um, by the Catholic army, by one of the Catholic armies. There was, there was quite a few. And he was in prison, and he somehow broke out, and he got out of prison, but it was, it was a literal chase for his life. He was running, and there was a military man running behind him, like trying to catch him, right? And they end up running across this frozen lake, and he was, man, he was sprinting for his life, right? Like, they weren't intentionally trying to go out and die, <laughs> and so he was, he was trying to get away. Well, he crossed this one section of the lake that was particularly thin, and he got across fine, but when the Catholic military man came across it, he fell in, and he couldn't get out, and he started drowning. And Dirk Willems stopped, heard the man screaming, turned around, and went and lifted his enemy, someone who was trying to kill him, lifted him out of the lake, saved his life, only to be then arrested by that man and then burned at the stake later that night. He was killed that night. In fact, I I don't know if I put the picture on the laptop. I don't know if we have it. Um, It should be on there somewhere. Uh, If not, don't worry about it. But there's a famous painting um, that was done uh, where it shows Dirk Willems reaching in and he's picking up the man that was his enemy in order to save his life. And as I was telling the story, Max, he's one of the the two sixth graders that I disciple, he stopped and he said, that sounds a lot like Jesus. I said, how do you mean? Like, explain that to me. Like, in my head, like, I was blown away that he just said that. Like, that just rocked my world that he just said that. That he got it that easy. But I said, okay, well, how do you mean? He's like, well, because uh, we had just gone through Romans 5 the week before. And so he opens, and he reads this verse that says, but while we were still enemies, while we were still enemies, God reconciled us to the death of his son. While we were still enemies. He goes, that's, that looks like what Jesus did. That looks a lot like what this guy did. And I was floored. It blew me away that he understood it. He got it that quickly. That that man, in that moment, reflected so clearly the light of Christ, just in his very actions, reflected it so clearly, which is what we're all called to do. And here's what I love about sixth graders, or junior high students in general. They are at the point in their lives where they are so easily molded. Right? They, they really haven't had... Uh, they really haven't had too many life experiences that either burn them or cause them to uh, think a certain way permanently, right? None of their ideas are really concrete yet. They don't have a worldview that is uh, set in stone. And so when I teach them something, man, they get it right away and they just start applying it. Like they don't really have all these checks and balances that for like someone like me or, or us have to be completely torn down to be rebuilt back up again. They're just building up, right? And so... Um, the next week, Max, uh, the same kid who's like, that looks a lot like Jesus, he brings uh, this friend to the Bible study that we have on Wednesday nights. Uh, his friend's name is Isaiah. And uh, I didn't really think anything of it. Like, kids bring friends all the time to these kind of things. And I met Isaiah. He was kind of quiet. He looked kind of awkward, awkward there. And, uh, and, but he came that week. 
He didn't really participate. He just kind of sat in a circle and listened. But then he brought him again the next week, and then the next week. And each week that he came, he kind of loosened up a little bit more. He started asking more questions and started uh, trying to participate a little more. And I didn't really think anything of it. I was happy he was there. I, I liked the kid. He, he was a uh, cool kid. Um, until a couple weeks ago, Max's dad came up and, and, and stopped me before the Bible study. He said, hey, I just, I'm sorry I haven't let you know sooner, but I feel like I, 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 need, I need to let you know something about Isaiah, just so that you're aware, so you kind of keep an eye on him. Um, uh, Isaiah had, it comes from a pretty rough background. Um, his, his dad is not part of the picture at all, gone. Uh, both of his older brothers are in prison right now, and his mom is working two jobs. So he's really at home by himself most of the day. He goes, and um, he's like about a month ago, or a few weeks ago, uh, Isaiah got assigned to a class project with, uh, with Max. And so Isaiah came over to the house with a couple other guys, and they worked on the, the class project for a couple hours after school. And then they all went home, and uh, uh, Max and his mom and myself and, and his siblings, we all decided to go to dinner that night to have a kind of family outing. Um, he goes, while we were gone, Isaiah had broken into our house and stolen money that he had seen earlier that day when they were working on the project that we had sitting on the counter because we hadn't deposited yet. It was money from the school that we run. They run like a um, elementary, like an alternative elementary school. Uh, it's a private school. And so it was money that they had collected that they hadn't deposited yet. Isaiah had come in and stolen it. The next day at school, Isaiah was flashing this money around and showing kids and kind of bragging about it. And one of the other kids went to the principal, and then the police came and arrested him and brought him to our house. And, and Isaiah had to confess and give the money back. And he goes, the funny thing is, and he goes, I still don't know why to this day, but when Max found out, the first thing that he did was insist that he bring Isaiah to Bible study. He insisted that he call him up and say, hey, can you come to Bible study with me next week? And he did. I don't know if it was because Isaiah felt really guilty or ashamed or what was it what was that caused him to say, yeah, okay, I'll go with you. But he did, and that was the first week that I saw him. I had no idea why at the time he was there, but that was the first week I saw him. And so, in Max's mind, he got it right away. Because he could have easily gone to school and seen Isaiah as his enemy, the punk kid who just stole his parents' money. He could have told the rest of the school that kid's a thief and a liar, don't trust him. He could, have tried, he could have tried to press charges on him. All of these different things. But Max couldn't do that. Because his world had just been flipped upside down by what he had learned. He wasn't looking at it through his own lens anymore. He was looking at it through the lens of Christ. His world had been torn apart. And as a result, this kid that had just stolen from his family, that really up until that point could care less about him, was now coming to Bible study and was hearing about Jesus. He was hearing about how he is perfectly loved, even with his imperfections. And he got to hear about the grace and redemption that he desperately needed. All because Max didn't look at the situation through the lens that we normally have, but looked at it in a different way, in this kind of way. 
through the lens of Christ and the cross. And it blew me away. At that moment, when I heard that story, my world got torn apart again because I didn't know if I'd be able to do that. I didn't know if I would have that same type of reaction in that situation. But once again, through other people, through a student that I thought I was discipling, Jesus rips my world apart and flips me upside down. Completely tears it up. He, the world will know us. They will know that we are disciples of him by our love for others. They will know that we are disciples of him by our love for others. A love that is so radical and doesn't make any sense at all. I saw that in him. I saw Max. He got it so quickly. And it's something that I pray every day I understand a little bit more. And that a little bit more, the lens becomes less and less my own, but more and more the lens of Christ. And so I want to leave you guys with a word of encouragement. I know you guys are probably used to like hour-long sermons from Mike, right? I don't do that. <laughs> uh, I have to limit my sermons to 20 minutes at the church I work at. So, um, You guys are getting a long one for me. Um, but I do want to leave you guys with this word, word of encouragement. This church, to me, brought me in and loved me radically the way I'd never experienced before. This church, to me, flipped my world upside down. You brought me in, and you made a disciple out of me. And then you sent me out so that I can make more disciples. This church lived out faithfully the mission statement that you all have to make more and stronger disciples who make more and stronger disciples. You lived it out faithfully. And so my encouragement is for each and every one of you that you just you continue to love without abandon, to love selflessly, to love recklessly. Each and every one of you, the second you leave this building or the second you leave this house, you're going to be surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of people in Sugarland that desperately need to hear about the grace and redemption and love of Jesus Christ. They desperately need it. They just haven't been loved radically yet. Do I think that Isaiah would have come to church if some random kid just would have invited him, hey, come to church? No, never. It wasn't built into his DNA. He lived in a world where that doesn't make sense to him. It wasn't until he was loved radically and forgiven of something, given grace for something, that anybody else would have said, shame on you. That then, okay, yeah, I'll come. So I encourage each and every one of you to do what you did with me and go out, find people, love them recklessly with all kinds of grace and bring them here, not so they can be inside of this building to fill empty seats, but so you can bring them in to be a part of this family that is an honest community of God that loves each other, that has grace on each other, that builds each other up, that creates disciples. That's my encouragement, and that's my hope for every person here. Go out, love, recklessly, anyone and everyone that you come in contact with. Because when you do, 
That's what expands God's kingdom. That is what reflects his light the most. When you love in a way that seems crazy to the rest of the world. I'm going to pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, um, I it just, I'm floored by your love for us, by your grace and forgiveness that we, man, we don't deserve it at all. But you give it to us anyway. You love us perfectly anyway. And so I pray that we take that love that you have given us, that you have instilled in us, and you let it overflow to every single person that we ever come in contact with. So that whoever we meet, they'll know instantly of your love, of your light. God, I'm I'm so thankful for every person in this room. And I'm so thankful that you love us perfectly. I'm thankful for the cross. It's your name we pray. Amen.